appreciate you so much in this place today. Hallelujah. Amen. Brother Shane, I hardly ever do this, just a tiny bit more on wherever I can hear myself. Just a little bitty bit more. We don't want to blow the people behind me out away. Isn't it great to be here? Bonjour. Buenos dias. Guten Morgen. Buongiorno. Bon dia. So big. Let me try to get this. So big here. Shub prava. Joe and John will get me on that one afterwards. Shasha Hal. Manguanania or Manguanani. Sister uh, Rebecca, help me out with that one. Jindobre, that's uh, Polish. I say that a lot around my work. And Dobre Utro is Russian. I say that a lot. And we all say good morning. Amen. It's good to be here in this place today. Guess what we're going to go over today? Languages. Well, at least the origin of them, right? For a little bit. I'm going to worship the one true God in whatever language that I speak and that I can get out of my mouth. I want to worship him with all my heart, with all my soul. In our text this morning, we're going we're gonna to go over uh, Genesis. And uh, in Genesis uh, 10, the end of Genesis 10, it starts talking about the generations of the family of Noah. It talks about the families and the sons of Noah and their generations and their nations and how they were divided in the earth after the flood. And in chapter 11, it starts talking about how there was one language and one speech and that these families traveled from the east and dwelt together. And then they decided to make some brick and mortar. They thought, you know what, we're not doing anything. Why don't we build something, right? And in Genesis 11.4, if you look up on the screen or have your Bible or your app, it's, uh, Genesis 11.4, and they said, go to and let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach, everybody say heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. These people had their idea what they were going to do, and they figured if they don't do it, they're going to be scattered. So that's why they wanted to do it. They wanted to stick together. Well, that sounds like a, a great idea, right? One would think that would great, the togetherness, the unity. Uh, but God saw it differently, and in verse uh, 6 and 7, of Genesis 11, and the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. They all have one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And all of a sudden they turned to each other and started saying those words I said at the beginning of the service to each other. And they didn't know what they meant. Or not the other person didn't know what they meant. Of course they did because God changed their tongue. Amen. You may be seated this morning. And of course, that's exactly what God did. 
as it was said. They left the tower unfinished, and they were scattered across the earth. Boy, uh, so many things are popping in my mind about my message here this morning and later on. But, you know, we as, as humans and we as people that have had a taste of this church know what our punishment is going to be. When we start dabbling with things, we know. They're like, hey, let us get together or we're going to be scattered. Yeah, they knew what exactly what was going to happen to them. I'm going to bring that up a little bit later about our, our lost loved ones, our people that have not ever been to church, those people that have and have backslid. And, of course, we know this as the Tower of Babel. It is believed that Nimrod, which was the great-grandson of Noah, was considered to be the designer, the engineer, if you will, of this tower. So he decided, hey, after the flood, after everything's going on, I'm going to get together. We're going to make it all a different place. And why not build a city and a tower to the heavens so where we can be with God or be as God, as some people say. Uh, but however, if there's a, um, there's a uh, message I preached a long time ago. It was a book, uh, out of a book. It's called What If. Uh, the most dangerous word in the Bible, if. What if. What if Peter didn't deny the Lord? What if he didn't strike the, the, uh, the guard in the garden the air with his ear? What if they prayed for him with Jesus more than just an hour? What if? What if? So what if Nimrod had have contemplated everything that had transpired up to his existence? He knew what happened before the flood. All the histories, uh, troubles up to this time. You see, there was paradise. He knew about paradise. But then the enemy got in. Okay, then the men built altars, and uh, they not only the animals, but also men died on them. Men turned against one another, those, and so cities were built where everything was defensible. They put up defenses, their walls, uh, against attacks. Yet even then, men said, I have this fence. Why don't I go to another city and conquer them? So not only did they want it to be defended, but they also ended up wanting, still wasn't good enough. They wanted to go out and attack and conquer other cities. So men dreamed how they could destroy of each other. Then God destroyed the earth with blood, and Noah used wisdom and guidance from God to save his generation. What if, when all this came to mind, what if Nimrod had decided to put aside pride and humility and follow God, and let God be the builder and the maker of the great city. Nimrod uh, possibly could have been like Abraham. And this poss when I say possibly, that means usually it's my thought, uh, not scriptural thought. But Abraham came right after the flood, right after this, right prior to Nimrod building this tower. Abraham came right after. What if Nimrod was just humbled in the sight of God and asked God to help him with all these situations? He could have been an Abraham. But that's not what happened. He decided that the problem with man was that man lived at the mercy of God instead of uniting and becoming independent 
of God. He decided they needed to be like God, to live where God lives. And let me show you a couple other scriptures. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And in James 4, it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he's going to flee from you. I'm, I'm telling you, you want the devil to leave you alone? You want the devil to leave you alone? Resist him. What? Yeah, that's that easy. Resist him. James 4.10 Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. That was one of my first Christian songs I ever learned. It was really easy, just like two chords. No, I won't sing it for you right now. I only have an hour and a half, Pastor Sid, I think. <laughs> Genesis 11.4, and they said, go, let us build us a city. A tower whose top may reach the heaven. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. So those who built the Tower of Babel was filled with pride. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us. Does that not sound familiar? God had already created man, but they wanted something different, it seemed. The phrase, lest us be scattered, lest we be scattered abroad, is as though they knew exactly what were what would be happen or what would happen if they were caught. They ignored God and did things on their own to build a secular religion by attempting to replicate on some level Noah's faith. See, they had Noah's faith, but the, and they knew that he built this uh, technology, if you will, this ark. And so they decided, hey, that looks like something very, very uh, technologically advanced for the day. So they took Noah's technology, but they didn't take his faith or his humility, and it wouldn't work out. The Tower of Babel was trying to mimic true faith, but replaced the rule of God with the rule of man. Let me say that again. It replaced the rule of God with the rule of man. Does that not sound familiar for these days? The religion of Babel is still alive today. Humanity's all, uh, ways always leads to confusion and division. How many is confused just looking at the news, looking at the paper, looking at the Internet? You, only three of us are confused. Come talk, come talk to me. Explain it, please. Yeah, so... So it is alive today. It doesn't take much imagination to look around this world and see a bunch of nimrods building other towers of babbles and projects. Isn't that the truth? Don't be a nimrod. We need to put that on our, our Facebook page, right? Little stick figure. This is nimrod. Don't be him. You've seen those, right? Yeah. All of you guys that are, don't do that. Pride's going to destroy a relationship with God. Did you know that? Your pride can sit in. Your pride don't matter. Nobody is exempt from the pride, from the, the 
the I'm going to say bishop, but I didn't mean like Brother Bruce Bishop. From the highest bishop in the organization of the church to the to, to the newest member of the church, nobody is immune to uh, to falling in to the sin of pride, and we got to be careful of that. And what's really scary, really scary, is where you think you are doing it, and you are in it, and you are doing something for the Lord, and you're just pushing completely, and you're doing things, and things, and crazy things, things are weird happening, and all this stuff, and everything's going on, and great like that, are you following God's plan? Are you, are we completely following his word? If, if pastor decided one day, hey, I've got this Acts 238 thing down, why don't we just put a slip and slide? And we're just going to throw them, and I'll baptize them in the middle of it, coming down. We got water, and you got Acts 2.38. You got a pastor, right? But how are we doing? What are we doing? How, how is that? That's not immersion. That's not the way to do it. And so sometimes sometimes we, we practice. We, we do things. We, 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 uh, these people were all building together in one language. But God said, no, what's going to happen is you're going to destroy yourselves and you're going to create other religions because of that. So what I need to do is put a stop on that. So we got to be careful in our own relationship with God that pride doesn't sink in and say, look at me. I am here. I am up here. I am down there. I am here. I am doing these great things. we got we got to be careful with that. Uh, we read in uh, we read in Proverbs 16 that the pride precedes destruction. It's true on an individual level, but it's also true uh, of society. Our culture ignores our past as it proudly builds their own version of Babel. It's under the disguise of un- unity of human beings, but leads to greater confusion and destruction. If you have an experience for yourself, you're probably aware that God actively works against the prideful. Even if you haven't experienced yourself, you know God works against. He does not like the prideful. We've seen it in the mild, very mild, low case, like like a group of teenagers getting in a car, and, and one of them wants to go one way, and one of them wants to go somewhere else to eat, and one of them wants to go, and you can't decide. And then the one person has to have his way because he can't be humble and say, you know what, tonight let's go everywhere. And that's teenagers, right? They're doing that. So that's like a mild Mild case. You might remember when you were little and your parents resisting. Hey, I want to go over to the splash, um, splash wild and splash thing over in Cape Coral. If you lived here in Cape Coral or Disneyland or whatever. And well, we can't do that today. Oh, no, I want to. And you, and you throw a fit. And and but you know your parents' control are it's too strong. And eventually you have to go their way. I'm talking maybe back in the 90s and 80s. So nowadays you never know. You see, you see kids in the grocery store on the floor swimming around in a tantrum, and the parents are just looking the other way. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I would have been in the, as they say in the military, I would have been in the dispensary on base looking at the doctor, and the doctor would tell me, why did you run away from your mom? You need to learn to sit still. Yeah, that, that wouldn't happen. But nowadays, nowadays it's the world sneaking in. So, so back then, we had no choice but to follow 
our parents. Now let's take it to another level, being opposed by an angel or a, de a demon. Alone, you could not overcome such power. Okay, here, I'm going to clarify that in a minute. Yet an angel or a demon is subject to an even greater power. What if God himself opposed you? What hope could you have? What power could you call upon to help you? So let me clarify it by this. And this is who the proud is up against. A greater power. And you're just going to be kicking against that brick wall. You're just going to be hitting that brick wall if, if God is your enemy. Because he does not like the proud person. He does not like that pride. And this is who you're up against. When pride enters the equation, failure and destruction are no longer a hypothetical outcome. They are a certainty. And so we must fight against pride. We do not want God as our opponent. We are called to walk humbly before God and man. The Apostle Paul taught us that we are not better than others, to see others better than ourselves, to not even be on equal terms with them, in other words, in a sense, but to, to I'm using the word for lack of a better term, exalt them, to praise them. Hey, where are you going tonight? Oh, great, let's go with you. Or, you know, that's like a mild thing. The other thing would be like, hey, let's go over and help you move. Let's go over and help your, uh, clean up your car, do your yard, something like that. That's what I mean. Put everybody that you come in contact with, even out in the grocery store, think of them and, and praise them, lift them up. Don't look down at them with a proud spirit. I got the I got the Holy Ghost and I'm apostolic and you're wearing these ungodly spandex pants. Ugh. You know, I, it's real. We see that out there, and sometimes we're like, look, look at that. Oh, my God. Oh. So we got to be careful with that. The apostle taught, uh, called us that we are to walk humbly before God and man, taught, uh, taught us to see better than ourselves, uh, better in others than ourselves. Um, we do that in our sphere of influence, or do we? Do we regard that person, any person, as better than ourselves? I know this goes against some of the philosophies of better yourself, be the greatest you can be. All those self-motivational seminars and books you read or experience, I know it goes against those. But however, Paul does not say to put yourself down and that you are worthless. And let me go on a side note. You are not worthless. I know sometimes pastors and preachers and ministers and conferences say, we are as filthy rags. We are, but God hung on a cross for those filthy rags. If it's not us, the world, it, who else could it be? He died for every soul. Every soul is worth heaven. Yeah, sometimes we feel the shame makes us feel worthless. I'm not worthy of, I'm not, we are not, but we are worth it. So Paul's not telling us to be worthless and don't, no, no, you need to be the best you you can be. There's that seminar. Be the best you you can be. However, the apostle or the apostolic way is the way of humility. We should never think of ourselves superior 
than another human, a human. In fact, when we esteem another, we are elevating that person in our eyes. Though we hope our government recognizes everyone is equal, our spiritual task is to submit ourselves to one another. We do not want God as an enemy. We should humble ourselves before everyone we meet. Human, uh, and I hope I get into this because this is super exciting coming up. Uh, human culture seems uh, bound in an endless cycle, trying to force its own way forward. But God's ways are above our way, Sister Melody. They are. Here's a look at our own times and consider how the practice of God works uh, has led the way forward. I'm going to ask a ridiculous uh, rhetorical question. Is our world adopting holiness, a holiness view of men and women? Is our world adopting a holiness view of men and women? Before you start throwing things at me, consider this. Lately, important publications have produced a steady stream of articles denouncing the sexual exploitation of women. You've heard it. You've seen it. Right? Have they not? They're denouncing that. A piece complained that the NFL profits from having cheerleaders dressed provocatively. This piece, uh, there's another piece, accused Hollywood's cultures of depicting women as mere sexual objects, compelling women to dress, or should I say undress, provocatively. Another column criticized Victoria's Secret for parading nearly naked women around like animals in a zoo. And yet another article complained the fact that our culture is so immoral that magazines in the grocery store line, the profits are determined by how much bare skin the models are on there, are on the front of the cover. It's there. You can't help it. Most of the time, I'm, I'm just laughing crazy at it. Because, you know, you're going by the checkout, like, Renee, look at that. That's crazy. That's. <laughs> also, you notice how our focused cultural commentators are these days uh, on, um, they're, they're uh, focused on proper male conduct. Off-color jokes are not uh, allowed anymore. On campus is the Title IX, the, uh, the uh, equal rights the, uh, for uh, women and for other minorities and stuff. These officers are enforcing strict no touching, no propositioning, no ogling, no oogling, no flirting ordinances. Consensual relationship between a man in a position of authority and an employee or student are potentially fireable offenses. And we could go on and on. And you, and this is a silly thing. You might ask yourself, where are we? We did just get off the boat in Plymouth. And now we have this governor of this town enforcing these, you know, don't wear this, don't wear that. That's what it sounds like they're saying. They're saying we have gone too far. Like, wait, wait, why is the world saying that? And I'm going to let you know. If we close our eyes real tight after that, what I just said, we can almost, it almost sounds like preachers of yesteryear when they started saying, hey, you need to be holy. You need to dress holy. You need to act holy. Because if the world is seeing this kind of stuff that's happening in there, they're seeing this, then I, I'm going to get that in a minute, but things are starting to happen and take place. 
this is also confusing. Aren't there, aren't there the same publications that not too long ago mocked us? The prudish Christians for teaching modesty and sexual purity? Did they not call us seer, silly Puritan fundamentalists and fanatical schoolmarms? You remember that when that came out? With the Bible in hand and frowning upon cheerleading? Perhaps you will remember these same analysts saying Christians who detested celebrities' loose lifestyles were betraying when they, when they uh, protested these celebrities were actionality, or in actuality, yeah, actuality, they were repressing neurotic obsession with sex. That's what they called us. They said we were doing when we said you guys are way out of line. Now the hashtag me too has come along. Along with a few other culture shifts, their tune has changed a bit. Maybe there's a pattern here. Could the world's great discoveries really be just rediscoveries of what the church had discovered long ago? I think it is. When the church practices holiness, racial, um, when the church practices holiness, racial equality, equal rights, the love of all people, the world has only mocked it. But then, like an expert antique dealers. They are. Years later, the world goes through the old house of belief and sees the beauty of what we had all along and tries to bring it out as their own genius. Oh, you guys should dress, you know, all these magazines over here. You're like, we've been saying that all along. And now you're coming up, but you used to criticize us. But it's not. You know what it is? It's like Psalm says. I think, I don't know if uh, Andy or somebody spoke about uh, this past week. That stone the builders once rejected has become the cornerstone. They rejected it a long time ago, but now it's coming into fruition where they're realizing this world is a horrible place. And they're the cause of it. That's why it seems like worldly progressivism is always about 50 years behind the times. You see, the devil at first completely rejects the church, its practices, but then he realizes he can't win and he tries to mimic the church, but he always comes up short. See, the devil's a liar. He's a father of it. The, the world's treasures are always only secondhand. They're only secondhand treasures. They are temporary because their actions, their converts, and their leaders are only halfway invested in the, into the doctrines of this world. What I mean by that is they are constantly being tempted by faith, tempted to faith by the, uh, faith by the awesomeness of creation and the goodness of man. You see, these people out here that are doing their stuff, in the back of their minds, or in their souls, they know there's a God and a creator and the goodness of things. And so what's happening is that every, every so many years, that gets the best of them because they're not completely invested even in the devil. And so God has an opportunity. And remember that when you're witnessing. These people are not completely invested because they have a sense of a higher creator their soul, that their soul is longing for. This is why the proud and even the backsliders are never happy. Listen to this. Let me give you some encouragement, moms and, and grandmas and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and cousins. This is why the proud and even the backsliders are never at peace with themselves. There is always that memory or feeling that they are not 
right in the eyes of God. Prodigal son, he sat there in a pigsty, right, and wallowed with the pigs and ate the pigs' food, realizing there is something better for me. Those of you who are with us with family and friends that have left the church or have never even been to church, do not be discouraged. These souls are struggling because they know God is the only answer. Why do you think they're so angry, so misguided, so rebellious, always venting and speaking out, supporting these, uh, the atrocities of the world? Why do you think they do that? You see it. We, I'm not going to hide the fact. I've already mentioned social media a couple times. You see it. My kids, your kids, uh, parents, whatever they are on social media, and the other people, and my uncle, just spewing out horrible things. Why do you think that? I look at all of them. My uncle was raised in a Church of God church. Spiritual. My sister, Keel, got the Holy Ghost in that church. And now he's up in the middle of Florida somewhere just spewing out all these, these hateful things and liberal things and just atrocities, killing babies. Oh, you know the thing. I don't want to get political, but you know all that. That's the world because they can't see that. Because somewhere down in their souls, there is a memory or desire to throw away that second-hand treasure of this world and get a hold of something genuine, right? Which is the awesome, encouraging power of Jesus Christ. Worship is an overflow of the heart and soul, a heart full of grace and gratitude. Uh, God's presence is in the middle of humanity. And this is the exciting part. I love this about this lesson. This might seem like deja vu if you've ever reread the history of Azusa Street Revival, especially in the way the columnists that wrote about it, the major publications like the Los Angeles Times and San Francisco Chronicle, they understood what was happening on the old, uh, in that old Azusa Street warehouse. Let's just say, however, they were mostly condescending and disapproving because of the fact that who gathered in that building on those hundred years ago, because who was in that building? Blacks, whites, and Hispanics. And they were all together praising God. And these columnists of these newspapers belittled that and bemoaned that and, and griped about it. And they didn't like the fact that the church was mixed and the people came together in mixed races. What? Fast forward 100 years, right? These same publications cannot get on a platform high enough to preach about racial equality. They're behind the times. They're way behind the church, the times. Remember we spoke of secondhand treasures? These virtues are secondhand treasures. Virtues easy to practice now because the church has lighted the way. We're talking about the virtues of, of, of us coming together as a church and the Holy Ghost being filled no matter what a color, what uh, culture, where you come from, where you are going. We love you. These are virtues. In 1905, these mouthpieces of society were behind the times, behind the church, but standing where they have always stand there and have always is always standing now on important issues, right in the middle of public opinion. That's where they're at. Let's go with the crowd. Christian, the Christian church has always been gifted 
with wisdom far beyond its years. Let me, let me augment that statement. The church has been endowed with wisdom. Men and women who humble themselves before the Lord have this wisdom. However, there have been men, I'm giving you the good, bad, and the ugly. There have been men and women in the church over the years that have, have ignored that wisdom of God and has gone after secondhand trinkets that the devil has hung out in front of them like a shiny object to a raccoon. They just can't not reach for it. They have sought the attention of others more than lifting up, lifting up others. So though we are imperfect, imperfect, because I just said our church is this way. There are churches, other denominations across this nation that have succumbed to the tricks of the devil. I mean, there are churches that won't let black people in their doors. Or if they do, you just hear huffs and buffs and groans. And, like, I mean, churches, not, not apostolic churches. I think God would, man, God would shut that down in a heartbeat if anything like that happened. Doing crazy stuff in there. Allowing, allowing homosexuals to become ministers. Gay marriages in their church. Secondhand treasures. That's what they have. And when the world catches up and finally understands the church, the church's practices and principles, they act like they come up with it themselves. The Apostle Paul knew this. Let's stand if you will. The Apostle Paul preached about how this world, the old creation groans, waiting for the sons of God. That's the example of the Old Testament where uh, that and, and the examples of the Old Testament were written for the church upon whom the ends of the world are to come. The church had not come to the ends of the world, but rather the ends had come to the church. The church is triumphant. It will always stand. It will always be here. Paul talked about an age of when the Holy Ghost rules, the age of peace, innocent, an age of the prophets, characterized as a time when the wolf would lay down with the lamb. The child would walk unharmed over the snake holes. The swords of war would be transformed into instruments of agriculture. And the reaper would have so much to work to do that he would still be out in the fields when it became time to harvest again. In other words, this is the end time. The hostility between races will end. Wars will cease. There will be a fulfillment of life and peace. The people would be skilled in the art of goodness and forget the art of war. And the problem is, church, the world is 50 years behind. They are behind. Because you can almost trace it all the way back to Nimrod. Instead of moving forward, he went backwards. He took what Noah did, a great architectural success, a phenomenon. And he goes, let's build something else. If it worked for Noah, but now let's work for him. Because why do we have to worry about us being at the mercy of God? Let's be as a God. The world. The world. 
our kids. It's been told to me, my family is my God. We need to pray for them. But I, I guess I could have named the secondhand treasure. Don't fall for the secondhand treasures of this world. Go for the genuine, the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Let's worship him, sister. Listen. Oh, when we lift our hands, Lord, here in your presence, here in your presence, we worship you, Lord. We worship you. Oh, we worship you. We worship you. I was debating on this. The church does not have to wait for the future. The future has already come to the church. The reason the church is always ahead of the rest of the world, because the future, through the gifts of the Spirit, literally reaches back into the present and equips the church with the power the world will only know in the next age to come. Knowing God has determined our end to be glorious, we will choose to live our lives in worship the one true God. God bless you. Thank you for time. Let's have an awesome time of prayer here in the next few